Before Las Vegas, before Atlantic City, people still wanted to gamble. And one man realized an all-inclusive casino resort could be a money-making machine. He was tightly associated with Tammany Hall. You know, they were the power brokers that ran New York City. And Morrissey himself became quite affiliated with them. So he was essentially an enforcer with the Dead Rabbits and the other against the other gangs. And if there were issues that Tammany Hall needed settled, they sent Morrissey and his people out to settle it. So Morrissey um, eventually splits from Tammany Hall, comes up to Saratoga Springs, and first thing he does is he starts a race course. It was nowhere near the big city and well-to-do politicians. But Saratoga Springs, 200 miles away from the center of gangs and gangsters, became the gambling capital of the United States and attracted everyone, from Cornelius Vanderbilt to Arnold Rothstein. That was really the heyday of the gambling. I mean, there were, there were dozens of places you, can, you could gamble, but really put Saratoga on the map to the extent that people would call it the Monte Carlo of America. It was the most fabulous, you know, elegant gambling place in all of America. This is Mafia, the first casino. Saratoga Springs was founded shortly after the Revolutionary War. Even from its early days, it was made to be a tourist spot. The first hotel was built in the early 1800s by founder Gideon Putnam. James Perillo is the executive director of the Saratoga Springs History Museum. And then Gideon Putnam is our first founding entrepreneur who builds um, Putnam's Tavern and Boarding House directly across what is Broadway today from our, our structure, the Canfield Casino. And his thoughts was, if we build it, they will come. Like many antebellum towns, Saratoga benefited greatly from the expansion of the railroad. The drawing factor was the eponymous spring waters, thought to be good for healing any ailments. The spring waters here, um, well, it's formed, there are pockets of spring water all under, all through the, under the shale in Saratoga. We have a fault line that runs directly through our city. And when the fault shifted millions of years ago, that allowed the spring water per to percolate to the surface. Natural spring water was a common prescription for the wealthy and a draw for new European immigrants. Along with a hotel, the town became known for European-style spas, where people would drink the water or even bathe in it to get its benefits. Tom Burns is an educator at the Saratoga History Museum. Saratoga becomes a, a, basically a summer vacation. Um, for the wealthy. And from Eastern Europe are coming here because they heard about the springs. They're very used to spring water, they bathe in it, they drink it, they accept that this is something they're looking forward to. You'd rub elbows at the spring water, but you're probably never gonna really be friends. However, that meant very diverse clientele that could come here. James Perillo said that during the summer, New York City was hot, humid, and smelled terrible from garbage and horses. For those who could afford it, Getting out of the city was essential, but traveling 200 miles in the early 1800s was a long trip. So Saratoga became a bustling town for the entire summer. But aside from the spas, the new sudden influx of people needed something to occupy their time. The obvious hobby, gambling. So horse racing appealed to all, you know, all the masses. People were coming here um, for the spring water, but they would come drink the water and then have business dealings um, and also um, visit with their peers. But um, people needed things to do. 
So that's why gambling started here. Even as a new town, Saratoga was a place that was rife with gambling. Current police chief Greg Veach says that there had always been vice crime, going all the way back to the town charter. Well, the charter specifically commands the police board to suppress gambling. Now, it doesn't say anything about crime. It doesn't say anything about burglaries or, you know, watching for house fires. It says the police board will suppress gambling. So there's an inkling there that probably gambling is already here. But the police didn't really suppress gambling at all. Veach also said that police forces were still new and didn't get a lot of training. Corruption was par for the course. The police were sort of expected to be corrupt. It was accepted that they were corrupt to a certain level. Uh, And people really didn't give it too much thought or care too much about it unless it was brought up in the open. Uh, And you'll, you know, Tammany Hall, people didn't like Tammany Hall, but they accepted the fact that all the police in New York City were on the take. It was just, that's part of doing business. Um, But when the corruption became too blatant or when it became part of a court case, then people would get, get upset about it. After all, if gambling was bringing in tourists and making money for the town, why would they? The Saratoga kind of struggled with were they going to be in law and order town or were they going to turn the town over to the gamblers and the gangsters? And they, for the most part, they did. And so Saratoga was the perfect place for the ventures of one gangster in particular, John Morrissey. John was a Irish immigrant. He probably came through Canada to this area. They settled in Troy, which was an industrial city. He was a, uh, an iron worker. He was very strong. Obviously, he was, a, he was kind of a fighter, kind of a ne'er-do-well, uh, not necessarily an academic or a student. Um, and he was an enforcer for the local pubs and, and, and brothels in, in the area of Troy. Born in upstate New York, Morrissey moved to the city in 1858 to start a job on the docks. At the time, although New York City organized crime was nothing like it would be after Prohibition, it still had a few structured operations. Downtown Manhattan was under the control of two rival street gangs, the Bowery Boys and the Dead Rabbits. The Bowery Boys supported politics that were largely anti-immigrant. Their most notable member was Bill the Butcher. The Dead Rabbits, however, were made up of Irish immigrants, and their most notable member became John Morrissey. He became the leader of a gang called the Dead Rabbits. You know, he really established himself as the dominant presence in New York. And he was a huge guy by the time, for the time period. Six foot one. His, um, one of his best attributes or greatest attributes was he was a one um, tough street fighter. He made a name for himself um, that way. There were some street uh, fights on the streets and docks that he was severely beaten. Morrissey was also known as an impressive bare-knuckle fighter and had competed as a heavyweight boxer. It got him a lot of attention. Boxing also is illegal. They used to box on state lines, um, and when the cops came, they ran to the other state. Um, So John Marcy uh, becomes a heavyweight champion and is probably funded and supported by wealthy patrons because wealthy people in those days really were running out of things to to better their their, uh, fellow competitors on. Between his boxing accomplishments and Dead Rabbits Association, Morrissey soon became involved with the rich and powerful. And 
he was tightly associated with Tammany Hall. You know, they were the power brokers that ran New York City and Morrissey himself became quite affiliated with them. So he was essentially an enforcer with the Dead Rabbits and the other against the other gangs. And if there were issues that Tammany Hall needed settled, they sent Morrissey and his people out to settle it. Tammany Hall was New York City's enormous and wealthy political machine. At the time, they supported a lot of pro-immigrant policies, but were also merciless to their opponents and were ruthless in their politics. And he basically greets the uh, immigrants, gets them jobs and apartments and, and extorts money from them and makes sure that they vote the right way. After retiring from boxing, Morrissey set his sights on establishing houses of gambling and one of his stops was not far from where he grew up in Troy. So Morrissey um, eventually splits from Tammany Hall, comes up to Saratoga Springs, and first thing he does is he starts a race course. He starts Saratoga Racetrack in 1862, and um, along with a few business partners, and they form what's called the Saratoga Racing Association, which is the early, early predecessor to what we have today called the New York Racing Association. The racetrack was phenomenally successful. Although most horses in the 1860s were involved in the Civil War, with Morrissey's connections, he was able to persuade his wealthy friends to bring their best horses. Reports say there were originally four days in a row of racing and betting. It was so popular that over time, it was extended to 40 days. And Morrissey had bought a second property. Across the street from the track was an old hotel and water bottling plant. So, perfect place for John Morrissey to build a gambling casino because if you're going to be on um, at the racetrack during the day, you come down well. So Morrissey could bank at the, have people bank with him at the racetrack and then come right into the gambling casino in the evening. So the casino opens in 1870 and it becomes a very significant building in the history of our city. Morrissey established the Saratoga Clubhouse and turned it into a luxury resort. All the furnishings were made by two New York City designers and made entirely of solid wood. The floors were carpeted wall to wall and he later got the likes of Frederick Law Olmsted to work on some of the landscaping. Uh, was, this was all designed by the Herder brothers. These are two German uh, furniture makers from New York City who also, uh, if you ever go to a Vanderbilt museum, you'll see that most of the furniture is done by the Herder brothers and designed by the Herder brothers. But Morrissey was careful with his business. He wanted to keep the favor of both the citizens and of the authorities. The gambling house was run under three very strict rules. Uh, you were closed, they were closed on Sunday in deference to the, the clergy in Saratoga. Uh, no women were allowed to gamble because that's how we thought of people back then, how we thought of women, they needed to be protected from the vice of women. And lastly, their third rule was nobody from Saratoga Springs was allowed in the building uh, at all. Veach explained that Morrissey learned a lesson from a French-German town called Baden. The citizens of Baden would go out gambling every evening and would lose all their money. Eventually, everyone in the town had to go on welfare, and the locals no longer wanted a casino. Morrissey understood that if you were the you were where locals lost all their money and then had to go on the the welfare rolls in Saratoga, people would resent you. Um, so they deliberately did not let locals play. However, 
You could play at any number of other places. There were certainly dives, certainly places where you could play for a nickel. You didn't have to have money, wear evening attire. In addition, Morrissey made sure anyone who might oppose a house of gambling was appeased. He made large donations to the churches and charities of Saratoga and took care of the townspeople. So if your church needed steps, he would give you the money to build new steps for your church. If, if, a, if a young woman, you know, was, her husband was died is one story. Uh, her husband passed away and she was having trouble making her mortgage. So John Morrissey paid her mortgage. Morrissey eventually was elected to Congress and later to the Senate, gaining him more political favor. And the police force, as Veach had said, were not going to make a fuss if no one complained. And the town wanted the establishment. Um, there were opponents to him. Not very many local opponents, but nationally, you know, this everybody knew the clubhouse was a, was a gambling joint. And um, one reformer by the name of Nellie Bly wrote a uh, paper or wrote an article in the Frank Leslie's Illustrated, and I think it was in 1871, and it blasted the evils of Saratoga Springs, the sins of the city, and had a beautiful engraving of John Morrissey with a, a very short man who was a poor pauper begging for credit because Morrissey took his money. And so nothing was said while Morrissey was around, but he wouldn't be around forever. In 1877, Jim Morrissey was staying at his apartment in the Adelphi Hotel in Saratoga when he contracted pneumonia. For months, he stayed in his apartment, trying to recover. And he actually passes away. He had two business partners that were associated with him through the racing association, Albert Spencer and Charles Reed. Um, they took, over, took ownership um, of the casino. And over their, the short period that they ran it for about six years, they essentially drove the place into the ground, or excuse me, 16 years. Um, one was undercutting the other, stealing money. Spencer and Reed ran the casino as usual, until a minority shareholder wanted to make it his own. Richard Canfield, known as Prince of the Gamblers, bought the casino outright. Canfield was a wealthy art collector and had several other gambling houses, including one in Rhode Island and one in New York City. After buying Morrissey's club, he renamed the establishment after himself and gave it an $800,000 facelift. A large marble statue was ordered for the grounds, and in the back, he added a large dining room for elegant parties and a new flashy sign. Now, Canfield um, started to um, have the casino known as the casino. Um, as if you were coming to our doors today, you see that the words the casino are emblazoned in glass above the doors. Canfield did that. It's kind of bold. It's a very bold statement considering that um, now he's starting to um, get some anti-gambling pressure. The new club even included a rudimentary air conditioner system for keeping the place cool during the hot Saratoga summers. But in 1892, when the engineers were here, they were thinking and plotting and planning of how an air conditioning system would work. So there was a series of fans in our basement that blew cool air through the vents, but that was the formation of the uh, GE company out of uh, uh, Schenectady, uh, which were designing and thinking about an air conditioning system sometime in the future. This was the kind of resort that would be recognizable as the hangout of the upper class. 
that was really the heyday of the gambling. I mean, there were there were dozens of places you can you could gamble, but Richard Canfield really put Saratoga on the map to the extent that people would call it the Monte Carlo of America. It was the most fabulous, you know, elegant gambling place in all of America, and people would refer to it again like like the Monte Carlo of America. Uh, he had a million dollars in his safe just in case he had to pay out, and. Uh, you know, he required men to wear tuxedos and women to have evening gowns and they would have dinner and, and gambling and he really made it a high class place and he attracted a lot of money. He, he made a phenomenal amount of money for the time. Uh, you know, on the order of three million dollars was his profit that he pulled out of Saratoga in just a few years. Canfield became even wealthier off the Saratoga tourists by raising the stakes. In the back room, Canfield had a gambling table where guests could bet up to $10,000 on a single game. But New York towns were going through a transition, and Saratoga was no exception. More and more social and political groups were starting to frown on gambling. And for Canfield, high reward became high risk. What happened with Richard Cranfield is he followed John Morrissey's rules, um, but he did give out credit. And by giving out credit, he started suing people to try to collect the money that he gave out on credit. Uh, there was a gambler that didn't pay off a bet, and Canfield decided he was going to try to collect on that bet. So he sued him, sued the gambler for it. You can't sue somebody for an illegal debt, which attracted attention to him in New York, which th therefore attracted attention to him back here in Saratoga Springs. As the negative attention starts to build upon him, Canfield decides he's got to do more to make people want him to stay. And that brought notoriety, and many people were against gambling and against the um, types of people that gambling would bring into town. Um, and there were many others um, in the neighborhood who, uh, Charles Evan Hughes from Glens Falls, he became uh, the uh, Chief Justice of the, of the Supreme Court. Um, these were people, notable people who were totally against gambling and alcohol. Canfield tried to continue the business, but after a few years, attendance had gone down significantly. It was no longer economically savvy to open the casino, even in the summer. Uh, the village did go through a reform wave, and he was, he was shut down for a couple of summers. And then they were a little finicky after the turn of the, to the, turn of the century, so uh, I think he just got tired of not knowing whether he was going to be allowed to be open or not. By 1906 or 1907, I believe, he started um, uh, becoming more negative notoriety and finally the town closes down the casino. And by 1908, it, the city takes over this building. Um, I think, believe they paid $100,000 for it and it became a municipal building and never to be used for gambling or any illicit purposes um, uh, again. For a few years, there was no gambling. The city turned the building into a museum, but the summer wealth had migrated from New York to Saratoga. And with the money came the gangsters. And there was a period of time between when Richard Canfield stopped, stopped operations in 1907 and 1917 when Arnold Rothstein invested in his first place, which was the Arrowhead out by Saratoga Lake. Uh, and he took a different approach than John Morrissey. He didn't buy off the citizens. He just went directly to the politicians and the officials and he bought them off. He opened up Saratoga Springs once more to essentially now gangsters as opposed to gamblers. Arnold Rothstein, the grandfather of the mafia himself, 
decided to move up to the town that had once been a gambling paradise and turn it into one again. He opened up the Brook Club, which was not only a place for gambling, but became an all-in-one for illegal liquor, betting, and fine dining. So as gambling grew, you started to see the gambling joints starting uh, popping up around Lake Lonely and Saratoga Lake. And that's why we like to use the term the lake house. So you have Riley's Lake House, um, Newman's Lake House, the Arrowhead, um, the Meadowbrook. So you had about a 20 year period of that with the high-end entertainment and you know the glitz and glamour. And they ran right through Prohibition. So Prohibition actually also helped Saratoga because there was a lot of rum running through our city. Um, we're right on the direct route from Montreal, so rum runners would um, get illegal alcohol, bring it down through either by plane or by vehicle. Greg Veach has a theory that Saratoga really became the inspiration for all casino resorts, since two of the men mentored by Rothstein were the brains behind Las Vegas. That Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel took the Brook model because it was an entertainment and gambling resort my theory is they took that model and brought it to Las Vegas. So we wouldn't have Las Vegas if we didn't have the Brook out Church Street in Saratoga Springs. But that's my theory. You know, I think we really summed up what Saratoga Springs history is all about. Um, and it's, there's, to me, the main thing is we wouldn't be here without the spring water. Um, spring, we wouldn't have horse, um, we wouldn't have tourism without the things that brought this, that developed the city, which was horse racing. Um, and then the vices that came along with it, which is drinking, gambling, and rum running. But all of that um, helped us evolve into the city that we are now. This has been an Audio Boom original production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Harry Sultan, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan. The executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. For more on the history of gangsters and casinos in Saratoga Springs, check out the three-part series, The Wheels Keep Spinning, at wheelskeepspinning.com. Thanks to Sony's The Traitor, Best Fiends, and Purple for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Mafia will return with Season 4.